Hello, it's Richard Herring here. Welcome to my podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. And my stand-up tour is about to begin. Can I have my ball back? First stand-up tour in six years. Many of you just know me from the podcast. Don't know, I've done 14 or 15 stand-up tours in my own right. I'm a brilliant stand-up comedian. And can I have my ball back? I think it's my best show ever. That's what the audiences are saying. It's about testicular cancer, but it's funny because testicles are funny, even though cancer isn't. Uh, I'm really pleased with it. I'd love you to come and see it. Bring your friends. Some of the shows selling really well. Some of them selling really badly. It's a traditional Richard Herring tour. But here's where I'm going to be. 2nd of May, Thursday at the Luton Hat Factory. It's a small venue, but there are still tickets left. 3rd of May, I'm at the Berry Hedge End, which is near Southampton. That's looking more full, but still some availability. 8th of May, I'm at the Leicester Square Theatre. There's about 10 tickets left for that one, though I am back at the Leicester Square Theatre in June. And then I'm at St Albans on the 9th, Gloucester on the 10th. Chorley Little Theatre on the 11th, that's sold out, but you can join the waiting list. And then the 12th of May, I'm at Glasgow, afternoon show sold out. Evening show, extra show, put on, still with tickets. And then there's lots more. Go to richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs. And now enjoy whatever podcast I've given you. It's free. It's all for you. If you want to pay me back, buy a book, come and see a show. That's all I've got to say to you. Love you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Edinburgh. Welcome to the Queen's Hall. Please welcome a man who's got a bag for life full of bones. It's Richard Herring. Oh, God, you're much better than last week's audience, guys. Those guys, those guys last week. Oh, fucking hell. Welcome. <laughs> Lovely to be back in Edinburgh. Still snowing. Uh, welcome to Richard Herring's Lock, Scotch and Tartan podcast. Kind of new. Though I was, uh, I was hanging out uh, down at Edinburgh Zoo to see the pandas. Um, yeah. They weren't there, but Yang Wang and Chian Chan left a note saying that they call it Rahalastapa. So that's, let's see if that catches on. Um, I didn't know, that, I, you know, I found out some facts I didn't know about Edinburgh. And I didn't know that, I didn't know much about the zoo. Uh, and I didn't know that uh, you, your zoo includes the only knighted penguin. You know about that? Sir Nils Olaf. 
He's a major general as well. And he's a sir. Going to be embarrassing for our guest this week when he finds out <laughs> who you're prepared to knight in Scotland. It slightly takes the edge off. <laughs> I didn't know that Princess Street Gardens used to be an open sewer either. I should have guessed. Should have guessed. Uh, and, like, so this is a literary... Uh, this will go out as a book club one, and that uh, the introduction, therefore, will make no sense because it's going out in January, this one. Uh, so... Piece it all together when you get home. Uh, so I've got, some, I've got a literary fact about um, Edinburgh that uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, do you know this, is based on a grave in Canongate Cemetery that Dickens saw of Ebenezer Scroggy. He's got Peter Kay levels of changing people's names. <laughs> <laughs> Which would make more sense if we hadn't cut that bit out of the Liverpool podcast. Uh, it said, Ebenezer Scroggy, mean man, he thought, Dickens, but he misread it. It actually said meal man, which means corn trader. And Ebenezer Scroggy was actually a jolly and mischievous man after he was visited by those ghosts. <laughs> Good. Good, well done, Rich. You must be very, must be very proud of yourself. Uh, I didn't know that Edinburgh has a 35 kilometer long electric blanket beneath the surface of the mound. Did you know that? Oh, fuck you. The bit... <laughs> People at home didn't know that. That's why the road there is never frozen. So it was interesting. Right, look, I, 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 I just will say again, I will be out after the show in the, in the little area out there. Do come and say hello if you would like to. Uh, you don't have to buy anything. I'll quickly tell you the stuff I've got. I've got various uh, things for uh, including the uh, 1001 Emergency Questions book. Perfect Christmas gift. Um, the Emergency Questions 500. Perfect Christmas gift. Uh, Christmas emergency questions, not a very good Christmas gift. No, it's a very good Christmas. Uh, and also, uh, would you rather, which is uh, just all would you rather questions, which is suitable for the whole family, six to 106, but no one over 106, no one under six. Uh, my editor was very, very much wanted to keep this clean for kids, right? I did one joke that was, uh, would you rather um, be a, something like being an avalanche or sucked off by a tornado? And she came back and said, oh, I think you've accidentally, that could be read in two ways. So that's not in there. It's very child-friendly. Uh, there's also Top Trumps. There's a playable game of Hullestaba Top Trumps. Um, and uh, I don't know if DVDs have made it to Scotland yet, but uh, I've got some DVDs. <laughs> Can't sell them anywhere else. I'm hoping you've got DVD players still. Uh, Happy Now, which is uh, the show I did a few years ago. Oh, Frig, I'm 50, which is my last tour show. I am touring uh, in uh, the spr- in the spring-summer with uh, my ball-based show. I'm sure we'll come somewhere uh, in Edinburgh, so do come along. Uh, but that's the 50 show. That's also got the Oh, Fuck, I'm 40 show. I'll soon be doing the Oh, Shit, I'm 60 show as well, unfortunately. Uh, and Fist of Fun, both series on one DVD set there, if you, if you remember that show. But, uh, you know, let's face it, no one's going to fucking buy those. Um, <laughs> I've brought two suitcases of stuff up on the plane, so I'd really appreciate if you bought, if you bought it, so we don't have to take it back again. Uh, look, we're going to crack straight on. Uh, do say hello after the show. Uh, and um, my guest this week, it's proper class this week, we don't usually get class like this on this show, he's best known for being a character in Alexander McCall Smith's 44 Scotland Street. Pretty literally all the way will you please welcome he's uh, like a penguin he has been knighted and he's got an OPA it's Sir Ian Rankin ladies and gentlemen it's Sir, uh, is that Sir? 
hang on. I have to stand. I should stand here. Yes, sir. You know that knighted penguin is Norwegian, right? Oh, right. <laughs> if, only if only this was going out in May and we hadn't cut that bit out of the podcast, that would be... The people at home would be rolling in the aisles. How does, it, does, it, does it take the shine off the, the knighthood to know that a penguin's been knighted as well? No. No, better. Yeah. 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 Good. I mean, I, I accepted it mostly because um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle has one. Right. And, I, you know, it always annoys me that I'm only ever going to be the second best known, at best, the second best known Edinburgh crime writer. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, although Sandy McCall-Smith keeps threatening to bump me off in one of his stories. Okay. So you never know. Um, he's done every, he's, he's had someone fire an arrow into my arse. <laughs> Uh, what else is he? He's, he's had a kid walk past a, a second-hand bookshop and say, oh, look, there's so many of Mr. Rankin's books in that. <laughs> <laughs> he's so popular. Uh, um, yeah. Good. <laughs> Revenge is a dish served very cold. <laughs> well, it's a very literary city. I mean, Edinburgh. And, you, and for a while, you all lived in the same street, right? All uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of... Uh, people called it... Somebody wrote a letter to the Scotsman newspaper and said, oh, isn't it funny that so many writers live on what we must now call writer's block? Because, you know, there was... I mean, I was two doors away from Alexander McCall Smith. Um, J.K. Rowling was basically around the corner for a while. And then we had Kate Atkinson was nearby. Maggie O'Farrell was nearby. There was a bunch. Um, and we occasionally did used to bump into each other in the same cafes right. in Morningside. And, uh, and, you know, and, and there was one time I was actually in this cafe. My agent, no, he was my publisher. He's now my agent. He was my publisher back then, editor. He flew up from London or came up from London for a meeting. And we were sitting in the cafe. And J.K. Rowling was at a kind of far table on her own with her ear pods. And she was scribbling away in her little notebook, writing, a, I guess, a Harry Potter book. Um, and uh, at one point, my uh, publisher, can he froze? And I said, what? And he said, she's gone to the toilet. And she'd left the manuscript sitting <laughs> on the table. And he literally went up and stood guard. Um, and when he came and sat back down again, I said, you know, that was our chance to make some serious money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, what is it about Edinburgh, do you think? I mean, because also Edinburgh is sort of, Obviously features in your work a lot, but it features in people's work, the other authors' work as well. What is it about Edinburgh that is producing or like draw, drawing in uh, all these authors, I suppose, as well? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to me that there's all these different Edinburghs, different aspects of the city. I mean, you know, when Kate Atkinson writes about Edinburgh, it's not the Edinburgh I write about. No. When Alexander McCall Smith writes about it, it's not the Edinburgh I write about. Um, it's like a TARDIS. I've often said this. It's bigger on the inside than the outside. Yeah. It's a very small city and easy to, easy to get around, and yet there are layers of complexity to it. You can never finish exploring it. Yeah. And also it's really suitable for crime fiction because on the surface to the visitor or the, 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 the tourist, it looks very rational and orderly and well-behaved, mostly. Um, but you can imagine any amount of things happening behind the thick stone walls and the net curtains and the shutters. Yes. Um, and it has got that new town, old town, rational, irrational, kind of planned, unplanned thing going on, which I think uh, is really appealing to a crime writer. Yeah. 
Okay, it's, it is. It's, 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 an, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I know people say that Edinburgh is a character in your books. It isn't, though. It's a place. So they've they've really missed. They've they've misunderstood. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't do anything. You should really pick them up on that. No, I you know what? I just take it as a compliment. Like, uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't think I don't think the books would be the books they are if they were set anywhere else. No, and it's you know, it's great knowing somewhere so well as I do. I know Edinburgh very well. Obviously, it is. It is a real thrill to. To I'd be reading the book or watching the show and seeing 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 stuff that you recognise. It's you know. It's, it's but then the also, uh, you know, if you're writing about a real city more or less in real time, when changes happen, you've got to reflect those. Yes. You know, so you can't not talk about. I don't know when a G8 came to Scotland. I couldn't not write about it. Um, when the police station at Rebus worked in, um, which was uh, St Leonard's. I was told, but I phoned up by a cop, and he said, "Oh, by the way, St Leonard's is going to cease to have a CID." So then I had to move Rebus to another police station. Right. You know, to keep it real. And then the big one is, I, I, when I started writing the early books, I wasn't living in Edinburgh. I was living mostly in uh, London for four years and then France for six years. So I was using my imagination and just remember, trying to remember things. And I put a foot rail along the front of the Oxford bar, which didn't exist. <laughs> it's... There's a little rail down the side, but not down the front of the bar. And then people would say, I, I went to the Oxford bar uh, <laughs> as part of my Rebus pilgrimage. And I couldn't help noticing there is no... So, so the owner at that time, Harry Cullen, had a, a, a little foot rail put in <laughs> to, to save my blushes. And I think I still owe him for that. Yeah. You should write about how your house has had the swimming pool put in the garden and stuff like that. The, people have to come around and make it. Assuming there isn't one already, I'm sure there is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this, I've read the, this is the most uh, recent so far. There's, an, there's, an, there's got to be another one after this because it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger is all I'll say. Uh, but uh, Heart Full of Headstones, which I've, I've just uh, finished reading and really enjoyed. Um, but it's, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's set during... Well, A, you, you, do, you do stick very uh, strictly to this idea of uh, Rebus getting older, which m- most writers... Of, of detectives, I think even Miss Marple seemed to go on for about a hundred years. Yeah, she yeah, was yeah. under when she started, so he gets older all the time. So that's kind of interesting. But also, it is it's set during COVID, which is again, you know, it's quite a bold. But yet, I suppose you had to you had to do that. I mean, it had, there's no way you could not mention COVID. Um, and uh, I was kind of I was humming and hawing, going, "Well, we'll do a COVID book, a COVID book, a COVID book." And then, just as things were relaxing and we could go back to the pub, I went to a pub down in the south side. Um, and uh, I walked in and there was a guy that I vaguely know well, no, I know him fairly well who was drinking in there Charlie and he had this kind of lanyard on with this kind of thing on this laminated card on the end of this lanyard I said Charlie what's that? He said well I've got COPD so this tells people that I don't need to wear a face mask I'm exempt from a face mask and I thought that's brilliant because Rebus also has COPD right. I gave it to him about two three books ago so he would have this lanyard <laughs> That he would, yeah, I'm God. I'm <laughs> sitting here with God. And um, I thought, well, he can have some fun with this because although he is a retired detective, he can brandish his lanyard and try and get into crime scenes and things. Yeah. It doesn't work, but it gives it a go. But that was when I thought, no, I can actually use, I can use that aspect of, um, of COVID. It was written just as we're coming out of COVID, so people are moving around and stuff, but face masks are still a thing and social distancing to a certain extent is still a thing. And because Rebus is COPD, he had to move him from his second floor tenement flat in Marchmont to a ground floor flat. Yeah. And I got very, very lazy. I just had somebody die 
who lived on the ground floor <laughs> and, and he just sells his place and moves into the dead person's flat. I, I couldn't be arsed moving to a different part of the city and starting all over again. You know? <laughs> I've got this big map of Edinburgh. Every time I start a new book, I go, where have I not written about? <laughs> and it's getting kind of thin. Yeah. You know, I mean, hopefully Edinburgh will keep expanding and new, you know, new housing schemes will be built on greenfield sites. Otherwise, I'm going to be struggling. <laughs> well, also the, the tram, right, affected this one. The tram shut down. <laughs> well, but that, yeah, I mean, I didn't know that. I wrote the first draft. I always write my first draft very quickly and without doing too much research. And then I go away and do the research after the first draft. So I had a murder scene on Constitution Street. So I go, I, I walk down Leith Walk, I get down to Constitution Street, I look around and go, it's, it's shut off at both ends for tram works. They're building a tram line down the middle of it. The emergency services couldn't get in here. The, the crime scene van couldn't get in here. The, 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 you know, the detectives and the forensic scientists and that couldn't actually, they'd have to park somewhere behind and then bring all their gear around and go. And I thought, oh God. But moving it to somewhere else would have been such a pain in the arse. <laughs> I am the laziest, hard-working writer you'll ever meet, you know? I am the laziest, hard-working writer. So, yeah, so that affected it. And, yeah. um, uh, but it was fun, you know, it's funny to say, oh, there's all this... I know the tram line's finished, Richard. You can... Uh, one of the f- exciting things about Edinburgh is you can take a tram all the way down to Granton now. I can't wait. I'm no. A, I know how popular you, the tram has you, been, so I'm sure everyone's delighted well, about you can get the But you can get the tram back to the airport as well. Yeah, I will do that, yeah. I might do that. Um, <laughs> I did. Well, I was also I was delighted. Were two s- suitcases full of unsold yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about that. <laughs> I, my, um, might I've get got, a cab. I've got to tell you that my my computer is so old it actually has a DVD slot. Okay, so, you can you can uh, take you, you, can, could, you can take whatever could, you want. That could be my Christmas. That could be my Christmas. I was delighted to hear because I, I this is the the way I write and this is the way you write. I don't. I think arguably I haven't been as successful. There's, we can argue about that later. Uh, I might not have sold quite as many copies of books, my books as you've sold of yours, but we have a, a similar working process, which is the first draft, you don't know. What, I mean, I find this extraordinary for a crime novel, because you, you know, but you don't know what's going to happen. So, I'm kind of in, so you're writing and you're discovering as you go. I'm quite interested as, yeah, if that's and, a and process. I, t- a long time ago, I did plot a book uh, in extraordinary detail. It wasn't a Rebus novel. It was kind of before I got into the Rebus stuff. But I plotted it in such detail that when I actually sat down to start writing the book, I didn't need to. Right. Because I knew the story. So I'd, if I knew the story, I wouldn't need to write the book. I write the book to find out what the story is. Um, so what happens is, writing a detective story, uh, at the start, I know as little as my detectives. And as they start to find things out, so I start to find things out. And I just trust that there will be an ending. That the book knows who did it and why. And I'll find that out eventually if I follow the detectives around as they pick up clues. And they just jump at you. Characters just, you thought, oh, I need a character to tell them someone who is it. Oh, my God, actually, that's quite an interesting character. I'll, you know, use them a bit more. Uh, More crime fiction writers than you might imagine work that way. Right. A lot of us fly by the seat of our pants. We make it up, and it's exciting. And it's a high-wire act because you can get to the end and still not know who did it. Right, I mean, yeah. there's one of, one of the Rebus novels, The Hanging Garden. The first draft ends, and I still don't know who the killer is. Right. And I read through the first draft and went, well, wait a minute. If you were there and you knew him and he did that, then maybe... So by halfway through the second draft, I'd actually worked out who the killer was. Yeah. Um, and that seemed to work okay. 
that book nearly got me into trouble because I often do use real, real life stories. And there was a, I think I just moved back from France. When we lived in France, we lived near a place called Oradour sur Glan, where there was a terrible atrocity towards the end of World War II. Um, the German army was, was, was running away, basically, but they were sort of wiping out people as they went, and they wiped out the, the, the entirety of this town. Um, and I thought, OK, I'm going to have a war criminal living in Edinburgh, and he's going to be outed, and then he's going to end up dead, and Rebus has to investigate his murder. Um, not realising that there was a <laughs> German war criminal living quietly in Edinburgh uh, as a landlord letting his flats out to students. Right. Um, and halfway through the writing of the book, the BBC did a documentary about this guy. Right. And he was going to sue the BBC. And then when he found out about this book, he was going to sue me as well. But he died, thankfully. <laughs> right. Wait. <laughs> he died before... before <laughs> Before he could take me to court. <laughs> yeah. Arguably, it would be better if he died before he committed his atrocities. But let's take every win. Let's take Swings and roundabouts, win. man. Swings and roundabouts. It's true. You know, silver linings. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, you know, it is, it's an interesting it's an interesting way to write comedy to not know where things are going to go. And like writing a sitcom... Um, you know, I'd really found that you do. If you trust the characters, you will find suddenly the, the, the plots link up and the yeah. characters link up and you know the characters well enough. And obviously, I mean, it's, it's so fascinating to me that I, I can't think of many cases where, there obviously are some, but where someone has written so many books throughout their life and throughout the life of the character following that same character for all that time. And, it, you know, it, you, you must know him inside out. See, I don't, and I, that's why I keep writing about him. Right. If I knew him inside out, I probably wouldn't feel the need to keep writing. I need to keep writing to find out more about this complex character. But, of course, this complex character keeps changing, evolving. Yeah. Um, the cases he worked on changed him. Now he's retired, so his ch- life has changed again. He's reconnected with his daughter, so his life's changed again. Um, and then towards the end of that book, his life takes another big change. So... 
as long as he keeps changing, I'm going to be, continue to be interested in him. And I keep reading, needing to write about him to find out more about him, to try and get to the, what makes him tick, to get to the kind of centre of his character. And he's always slightly eluding me. Right. Um, but also he's a very good way. I can hide behind him and say things that Ian Rankin couldn't say. Yes. You know, Rebus can say really shocking things. Yeah. Which, if I said them, I'd get in trouble. And I, don't, I don't. I'm a kind of. I'm a. I'm a rule. You know. I'm not a rule breaker. I'm not a maverick. So I get to have all my adventures, all my kicks, all my jollies by hanging out with this maverick, this foul mouthed maverick. Maverick. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I'm not like that. No. People come looking for him. They come to the Oxford Bar from all over the world, and they sit there, and I walk in, and they go, no. Oh. <laughs> you know, I've got my paper. I've got my pint. I just want to sit in the corner and you know, do the crossword. And they're wanting this, this, this dark, brooding guy to come in, this yeah. slightly dangerous guy to come in, and they get me, <laughs> which I think is a bit disappointing for them. Um, they're just about to I, get a new... I agree, about, and I think what, it will be disappointing. No, I'm joking. No, no. <laughs> but they're about to get a new Rebus. Rebus have filmed it, and they're going to get Richard Rankin. No relation. Um, no Nepo baby stuff here. Um, but he's going to play a kind of younger Rebus. So yeah. we'll, have a, we'll have a Rebus who's full of vim and vigour again. Okay. Um, which will be quite exciting, but set in the present day, which is going to be kind of weird for me, which is why I probably will keep up my tradition of not watching the TV shows. Does, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about them because it's, you know, I, I was watching a couple of them today or yesterday, and, um, you know, it's, you, you obviously you write a, a, a complicated, long book, and it gets translated in, by somebody else into, like, a 70-minute TV show. Is, 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 that, is that a difficult thing to let go, or, does, is it, or, or are you able to say, you know, take, yeah. take my characters and... I, ju- I just take the money and run, but yeah. I, I just, you know... I, I was going to say that might help, but it's yeah, no, still... Uh, no, I, 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 you know, there's that thing, I, t- I remember when it was first taken, I mean, the story of Rebus on television is long and convoluted and involves people like Robbie Coltrane and various other things. Um, but early on, when it was accepted for television and it was going to be John Hanna playing Rebus, I phoned up a few crime writers I knew whose work had been televised, and one, um, Colin Dexter, who did the Morse, Inspector Morse books, he said, oh, it will change the way you write about the character. Uh, he was so enthralled by John Thaw's take on his character, Inspector Morse, that he changed Morse in the books to be more like John Thaw, the actor. Right. He smoothed off a lot of his rough edges. And I said, well, I don't want to change my character. So I decided that I wasn't going to get involved in the production and I wasn't, go- I wasn't going to watch it on TV. Interesting. Um, I mean, I, you can't help occasionally flicking through ITV3 or whatever. And, <laughs> and you know, there it is at 11 p.m. at night. There's a, 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 a John Hanna episode or a, a Ken Stott. Now, the John Hanna ones were truer to the books. There was more plot in them because they were two hours. Right. When they went to Ken Stott, for some reason the TV people thought everybody's attention span is gone. So we better make it one hour, in and out in an hour, yeah. which on ITV is 45 minutes. Yes. So as you say, it was a 45-page script from a 300-page novel. Yeah. So they just chucked the novel away. And they had to keep the title um, contractually. Okay. So they would just call it something like Knots and Crosses, but it wouldn't be the plot of the book. That would be a brand new plot they okay. invented to fill that space. Right. Which is why my wife would watch them and go, I don't remember this happening in Knots and Crosses. <laughs> uh, and I would say, well, what does happen? She'd tell me, and I would go, no, that isn't, that isn't in Knots and Crosses. Um, and I, even I, I got a little cameo in one of the, uh, no, I can't remember which actor it was that was playing Rebus at the time, but I got a little, they said, do you want a little cameo? I went, oh, yeah, great. It was The Falls. I think it was one of the John Hannas. 
And anyway, um, they said, right, you're playing uh, the, the, the heroic pedestrian who sees Rebus's girlfriend, Miranda, being attacked by the red-headed guy. And I went, which book is this? <laughs> and they went, well, it's The Falls, but yeah, there's no red-headed guy and there's no girlfriend called Miranda in the book. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, so fine, I'll, you know, and I did it. And I wish I hadn't done it because rain on television, to make it look like rain, cannot be water. They use milk. It's a kind of mixture. It's a big sort of vat of milk and milky water or right. watery milk. And so that's what's pouring down on you as you run down the street to rescue the, the person you've never met in your life. Who, yeah. Are you sure it was milk? Mix. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had it my tea later on. It was fine. <laughs> just we got the author coming in. Just tell him that they can't use water on TV. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> where would you get that amount of... No, let's not <laughs> We could, we could work it out, we could work it out. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it, 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 there's so many fascinating things to talk about. I mean, I, again, I hadn't realised it wasn't until sort of about the eighth book, right, that, it, that, that they, they became sort of a, a hit. Like, so they, they'd been bubbling along and then, yeah. then they became sort of massive on uh, Black and Blue, was it? Well, they didn't. I mean, Black and Blue won the Gold Dagger, which is the right. prize for the best crime novel of the year. And that sort of persuaded my publishers they shouldn't drop me. okay. Um, I think they were getting pretty close to dropping me because I was what's called mid-list. You're sort of bubbling along, you're selling a few thousand copies, but no one's very excited about you. I wonder what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but, but because it won the, the gold dagger, you stick that in front of the next book and people get a bit more interested and the media get a bit more interested. Your publisher puts a bit more money into marketing and publicity. Um, and so it was Rebus book number nine or ten before I started hitting right. the, the top ten bestsellers. And it was probably 12 before I hit number one. Now, I'd written about eight other books. That's 20 books into my career yeah. before I get a number one bestseller. So a lot of people would have given up before then. But I'm just stubborn. <laughs> They've got a good Scots word for it, thrown. Right. Thrown. And that's what I was. I just, I, you know, people would say your books aren't selling. And it just made me want to work harder and make the books better because I knew there was something in here that was good. It was just how do I get other people to agree with me? Yeah, and then they did, and then everyone goes back and buys. So oh, you, oh, you're suddenly selling all of those books. That, the, the glory of doing it. If any want to be writers are in the audience, one there are there are sweet, you know pros and cons of doing a series. But one of the pros is definitely if somebody picks up one of your books and likes it, they might go back and buy all the others. So the backlist just went whoosh. Yeah, uh, all the early books just went whoosh, and it's extraordinary. I mean, the first book, Knots and Crosses, was written while I was a student in Edinburgh. Um, in 1983-84 I was a postgraduate student and that's still selling Yeah, you know, I mean I still get a few quid every now and again from that book, I just think it's, it's and in fact I was just at Glen Eagles Hotel um, <laughs> giving, a, giving a talk at a conference and they had the, they, the only book of mine they had in the bookshop was Knots and Crosses right. and I just thought well okay, because you know if somebody starts, if an American comes along and picks it up they might go home, read it and go okay I'm going to buy all the, all the other 23 books in this series. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's good. Is it, you know, is it... I mean, I know you didn't really want to be a crime... You didn't think you were writing a crime writer book when, with, with that first book. You know, I, I say that in interviews, and I'm sure that's shame. Okay. <laughs> I, no, I, good to hear. Well, because, because I, I started going back and checking the chronology, and I did that because a few years ago, well, during lockdown, actually, I was asked if I would take on the job of um, finishing a book completing a book that had been started by um, William McIlvaney, a fantastic yeah. Scottish novelist who had an 
Glasgow cop called Laidlaw. And I was thinking, well, actually, I remember Basin. I mean, I went up to him in 1985 and said, oh, Mr. McIlvaney, I'm writing a book that's a bit like Laidlaw, but set in Edinburgh. And he sort of signed my book, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. So I knew that I was writing a crime novel. Right. I mean, because I'd read Laidlaw. Yeah. But I didn't think of William McIlvaney as a crime writer. Right. I thought of him as a literary novelist, and I think so did he. He was just slumming it for a little while. Um, and so, and when the book was published, it was put into the crime section in the bookshops, and I went, oh, okay. Because I was doing a PhD on Muriel Spark. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't, in, I wasn't going to be a crime writer. I was going to be a <laughs> professor of literature at Edinburgh University and smoke a pipe and wear a tweed jacket, <laughs> you know, go to poetry readings. Um, have affairs with students. I was going to do all of that, you know. Um, you know, all the... And, and, but in, instead, I went, oh, it's in the crime section. And then the next thing was the Crime Writers Association, which is like the club for crime writers, or the, the, I don't know, the union for crime writers, wrote to me and said, you should join right. us. And I thought, okay, I'm a crime writer. Yeah, but it's sort, of, it's sort of weird that there's... I mean, I find that weird when there's a snobbishness about, you know, I, I love really good sci-fi. I think Kurt Vonnegut's like one of the greatest writers there's ever been. And there's still a sort of, even with him, there's a snobbishness about it because it's sci-fi and therefore not as important or not as relevant as great literature. But that's, you know, these books that you're writing are, are, are full of lots of ideas, dense ideas, lots of, you know, lots of relevance to, as we see, as you see, like you make, you make them relevant to the modern world. This one's got you know, police brutality and, you know... Which was very based on the Met. Yeah. You know, I just thought, this is terrible what's happening at the Met, I'll just move it up to Edinburgh so I can discuss it and, and yeah. readers can think about it a bit but more. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's serious stuff and, it, and, and, and deep. So it's, it's, it's sort of weird. Does it, does it annoy you that that's... I mean, you know, again, the money must be nice, uh, but, uh, but does it annoy you that it... That, that, I, I, no, I find that with comedy. I think yeah. like when comedy films don't get nominated for Oscars. And you go, comedy's harder than writing a book about... It's writing a film about something really serious. It's yeah, easy yeah. to write something a bit serious. Yeah. So uh, does it annoy you that that's... I, rem- I remember um, Lee Child, the thriller writer, saying that he could write a Martin Amis novel, but Martin Amis could not write a Lee Child novel. <laughs> you know, because um, it's very hard to write a Lee Child novel. Yeah. Uh, and, and I kind of agree with that. I mean, crime fiction is taken a lot more seriously now than it used to be. Sure. People do their PhD thesis on crime fiction or you can read my books and do essays on them in high school and what have you. Um, sci-fi is not quite taken as seriously as it should be. Fantasy, definitely not. Um, romantic fiction, women's fiction, a lot of the time commercial fiction isn't taken as seriously as it should. Crime fiction to me, when I started reading it, because I didn't really start reading crime fiction until I'd written one, Right. really. Um, and I just thought, I like, I like the, 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 the way that it digs, it digs down into... In, it, very big moral questions of good and evil. Why human beings keep doing terrible things? Um, what is it about us that we keep having crime, that crime keeps happening? There's no such thing as a kind of utopian society, a perfect society. We're, we're flawed. We're flawed creatures, and crime is part of that, that process. I thought there's a lot you can do with that, uh, but at the same time, also, you can paint a very compelling portrait of a country, a culture, a city, and the people in it, using crime fiction as almost a facade, uh, just a way of getting into that stuff. Uh, but nobody realises that they're reading a serious book. They're too busy having some fun with this very <laughs> exciting narrative. Yeah. Which is, which is fun. So you get the whole package. Crime fiction, for me, is the whole package. It's as serious as it wants to be. Um, it can take on really dark, deep issues, but it's also entertainment. It's got to entertain because we aren't getting propped up by Creative Scotland or, you know, the Arts Council or whatever. No. Um, so we've got to make a living. 
So we're, we're artisans. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, and there's nothing wrong with something being popular and populist and people wanting to read it, which sort of says more about, you know, other books, I think, that are taken more seriously, with, which people aren't reading sometimes. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. I mean, but, I mean, I always, you know, whenever the Booker Long list is coming out, I go, is it this year, Ian? <laughs> but um, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like the list Hot 100, I think. Yeah, probably not. You know, yeah. I'll have a wee look, but I don't think I'll be in there. <laughs> okay. uh, and this year, yet again, I failed to make it into the list's hot 100. Right. Um, not even, not even moist. <laughs> <laughs> you were selling, according to the figures, you're selling 10 percent of the UK crime books. That is that a, still the true? Is it still I, true I now? Osmond's I, on the scene. I can't think it's true now. Um, we've got Richard Osmond. Yeah. Now. Um, he's moved into he's podcasting just, now, you know, so he's, I'm just, he's just He's just hoovering up all yeah. those. Um, I mean, it was very clear. I mean, it's, this is, here's the thing. I mean, the reason that Richard Osman is very successful, I mean, one, the books are good. He knows what he's doing. He's a huge fan of crime fiction. He comes from a good place. But he also hit the zeitgeist. He hit people at a time coming out of COVID when we wanted a world that made sense to us. Not just COVID. I mean, everything that happened with Trump, everything that happened with Brexit... We're going, what? The world makes no sense to me. Here's a world that makes sense where ordinary people, not detectives, not professional detectives, just ordinary people, will solve the mysteries, will bring order from chaos. So they're almost like Shakespearean pastoral comedies. Everything's shaken up, but at the end, everything's going to be okay. Because these nice people, nice middle-class people of intellect are going to make it all right again. So he's going back to the kind of golden age of the cosy. He's going back to the Miss Marples of this world. Yeah. And people just love it. They love it. Um, the other thing that's happened with crime fiction, it's, it's also started to get very dark. And, and the books that are also selling are not police procedurals. They're kind of domestic noir or very dark psychological noir, which reflects the, the, the age. It reflects the fact we don't know what's going on. We don't know who to trust. We don't know what to trust. Can we trust the tech? Is our computer spying on us? Is our doorbell spying on us? Is our mobile phone spying on us? Is our, is our spouse who we think they are? Are our neighbours out to kill us? We're, there's all that stuff is, is selling by the truckload yeah. um, because people are just a wee bit, they're bemused and they're scared and, and the, this conspiracy type thriller is really making a comeback. Yeah. And police know, and I think the police, the police procedural is in trouble because, as you pointed out with the Met, we don't think these are the good guys anymore. No. With Black Lives Matters and the Met and everything else that's happened uh, in, in the, those two continents, um, it's hard to persuade people that the, 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 the police are the good guys. Yeah, well, I mean, and obviously there's always there's been a sort of blurred line with Rebus anyway between those two things in any case. Yeah. And it is, he is sort of, he's an old-fashioned detective in, the, in that sense. So there is, um, you know, he's... Hopefully, I was watching a, a documentary about the, the Yorkshire Ripper case on the BBC recently, and the, the detectives on that are sort of, yeah. you know, completely to blame for for the thing stretching out that long. And then when they catch the Yorkshire Ripper, they're all sitting there not going, "Oh fuck, we said it was the weird side guy, and we mm. said this and we said that." They're going, "Yeah, we got him." <laughs> when they caught him by accident, basically, yeah. and these horrible guys who are responsible for the deaths of like. 15 women, really. Yeah, I mean, Rebus does belong to that kind yeah. of category, that sort of grizzled, cynical detective. 
I mean, he is, he's, a, he's a dinosaur. I mean, you know, he's, he's now retired, but he, even when he was towards the end of his police career, he was a dinosaur. He was the last of that breed. They, they can't be like that anymore. Or they, it's much harder for them to be like that because with CCTV and mobile phones and everything, they get caught. Yeah. They get caught doing the bad stuff, and they never used to get caught doing the bad stuff. But the public love it. See, when they did Life on Mars, that TV show, I've, I'm sure we were supposed to be on the side of the young, touchy-feely cop from the present day. Yeah. Not the Sweeney yeah. guys. But Gene Hunt was such a larger-than-life maverick character that we just wanted to hang out with him. We didn't want to hang out with John Sims' character. He was a bit, bit grey and boring. You know, we like to kind of, we like to dark. We like it dark. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, yeah, and Rebus is, like, like you say, he's not, he's not like you and you, he doesn't share the same politics as you. For some. Well, no, I mean, he, he definitely doesn't. I mean, he's, no. a, he's a kind of, I don't know, he's a conservative and he's in, in most things that he does, he doesn't like change, he fears change. So, I mean, he's conservative with a, conservative with a small C. He's probably a Labour, he's probably a Labour voter, I don't know, because he's old working class fife. I mean, old working class fife, the coal mines and everything, the stuff I grew up with. You, you, you just, yay. Yeah, you know. yeah. One left. One yeah. Left. Yeah. But, you know, you just voted Labour. I mean, you just did. Yeah. Um, you know, anybody could have got voted in at that time. Um, we had an extraordinary MP, Willie Hamilton. Uh, yeah, who was uh, very vehemently anti-royalist. But at one time, they were going to split Fife in half. Half of it was going to go to Dundee and half was going to belong to Edinburgh. Right. Uh, and Willie Hamilton campaigned vociferously for Fife to remain Fife. And, uh, and thankfully he did, because Dundee and Edinburgh didn't want us, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling was entirely mutual. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a great book, I have to say. I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, I it's, can't, what's, such... yeah, I'm try- what's that about? It's... Uh... Yeah, honestly, I, I, last week I forgot, I forgot the title of this book. Uh, it's, a, it's A Heart Full of Headstones. It's a, it's a, it's a line it's a from lovely, Jackie Levin. It comes from a song, right? Yeah, it's Jackie Levin. I always try and get a Jackie Levin lyric into my books if I possibly can. He was a great uh, singer-songwriter who died too young. And uh, he and I did... Um, we toured together. We performed here, actually. We, we did a show together. I, I wrote, he wanted to do something at Celtic Connections, and he said, will you come on stage and do a reading? And I said, well, why don't I write a short story that actually ref- reflects some of the themes in your songs that I see in your songs? So I did it, and the story was called Jackie Leave and Says. And I would perform the story on stage, and he would play songs in between. So I'd do 10 minutes, he would do a song. I'd do 10 minutes, he would do a song. And we did it, we did it in Glasgow at Celtic Connections, and it went down really well. Uh, and they were supposed to have recorded it for an album, and the recording equipment failed. So... We came to Edinburgh to do it during the Fringe, I think, in this very room, and we recorded it here. Right. So there is a CD you can get of Jackie Leaven said, which was recorded at the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh. I'd forgotten that we recorded it here. Cool. It's, uh, the, yeah, the, the, well, there's, there's lots of things I want to talk to you about that aren't uh, necessarily Reeves connected. I, 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 I found out that... Well, A, I found out you... Uh, from Desert Island Disc, you mentioned you wrote a Mills and Boones-type uh, novel... As a teenager, and then Sue Laurie doesn't even go, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and ask you about it. So I'd like to know a bit more about your mil- your your attempt at Mills and Boons, how that went, and what was uh, what it was about. You know, I missed a trick there. It was yeah. it was Sue Laurie's final week of doing recordings for Desert Island Discs, <laughs> and I, I almost chose "So Lonely" by the Police. <laughs> <laughs> 
just for a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but rather than that, rather than put her through that, I made her listen to Mogwai. Yes. Uh, Mogwai Fear Satan, a band that I first saw in this very room, and the plaster was falling off the walls because they were so loud. I started off at the front going, yeah, Mogwai. Ended up upstairs at the very back, <laughs> hanging onto the wall going, dear God, this is loud. Um, yeah, uh, Desert Island Discs. Well, no, I never did finish the romantic novel, but I did write away for the instructions on how to write them. Right. You could write to Mills and Boone and say, I'm going to write a romantic novel, can you send me the, the kind of cheat sheet? And they would say things like, no sex, uh, you can have a kiss, you can do this, they've got to be clothed, they've got to be no swearing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, but my heart wasn't in it. I mean, I got the idea. The idea was, and this is, you can have this one, Richard. Okay, uh, thank you, I'll take it. Uh, it was a, a, a woman who's got a, who's got a very rare uh, um, medical condition and she's not got long to live, so she goes on a cruise just to treat herself for one last time. And there's a handsome guy on board and she thinks, oh, you know, and she starts falling from but thinks, no, this, this can't happen because I've not got much longer to live. And then she sort of keels over and he turns out to be the only surgeon in the world uh, <laughs> <laughs> who is capable of carrying out the operation to yeah. save her. And he only save her with his dick, is that there? there there's only... <laughs> Not in Mills and Boone, man. You're thinking of Harley Quinn. <laughs> Harley Quinn was the hardcore um, Mills and Boone operation. Uh, no, so I thought... And I, but I thought it was one of the, You know, I was a student and, I, and I, was, I was skint and I thought, I want to be a writer. What do, what do I need to write that will make me money so I can be a full-time writer? I looked at horror. Um, I started writing a horror novel uh, about the end of the world and that, that didn't quite work either. I gave up a lot, I started a lot of projects and gave up on them. Um, film scripts and TV and all kinds of things. And I, I, was, a failed, I was a failure, you know, and uh, almost, I mean, I tried to be a pop star and that didn't work out or a punk, punk band yeah. didn't work out, writing songs, um, play scripts that never really made a... Uh, I mean, I just lucked onto this guy, Rebus, and he was only meant to be around for one book, but yeah. he had other ideas. It is the life of a writer, though. I mean, I think that is great to hear. I think it's very encouraging for any writer to hear that because you know, there's so much rejection, even for people who you would look at and go, oh, those guys, that guy's been sorted. You know, I, like, I was surprised to even realise that there was that time where, you know, that, that it, took, it took that long tail to, to get to, to where you've got to. Um, so, you know, you just assume that someone who's successful has always been successful, but it is just a constant rejection and constant, you know... Yeah, and I think these days, you know, back then, I mean, we're talking about Neanderthal times, 1980s, in the early 90s, when British publishing was still an all-boys kind of club. Yeah. My first editor, I, I got the night bus to London, it was all I could afford was a night bus, and then I walked to Bloomsbury, where the publishing house was, that had accepted the first Rebus novel, and an editor said, I'm going to take you to, to, to my club for lunch. And I thought, what, like a bowling club? Uh, what? <laughs> uh, and, and it was the Garrick Club. Right. So, I mean, I did what you would do if you're working class and you go to the Garrick Club. I stole all the headed notepaper I could find. <laughs> and for years afterwards, wrote letters to the Times on <laughs> Garrick Club headed notepaper. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was like, and it was, but it was, if, if they liked you and they liked what you did, you could be running at a loss for years and they wouldn't be too bothered about it because they had big hitters who were making them money. Um, but these days, I think that's changed. These days, if you don't make it with your first or second or third book, you're dropped, you're gone. Yeah. I mean, I was being published at a loss for five, six, seven books. Um, and I think now you don't get that. It's much more kind of hard nose, much more run by accountants and less run by, you know, Bufton Tufton. 
who just thinks it's a, a, a fun way, fun way to spend their money. Yeah, but it's interesting that, that you know I think that's true of TV as well. That you know, in, the, in the past they would just let they would let people have a go and see what happened, and sometimes it would fail and sometimes it would succeed. But by giving you know it's worked out, hasn't it? Presuming you're with the same publisher, maybe you're not, but it's worked. It's worked out for that publishing house to stick with you. So they, they, they've you know you've turned out to be. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're big seller. So you need to get behind stuff. It's like, you know, with my, it feels like with the TV comedy, they used to let, you know, even when I was doing TV comedy, they let you have a couple of series to mm. see how you were going to get on at least. Yeah. Mon- Monty Python, they just gave them 13 shows and said, come back with the shows, yeah. which are, you can't imagine that happening now. And, no, know, and so I, we, can't, I can't, I can't, I couldn't believe it when I first found out that in America, if a, if a first season wasn't doing well, they would just drop it yeah. halfway through the season. And you go, what? And then you find out they're making Hollywood movies and not showing them because it's, it's, they're doing it as a tax write-off. Yeah. And you go, what? Really? All this creativity, all this extraordinary human endeavour, um, and, and you, don't, you don't care about it. Yeah. You don't care about it. And I mean, I, I do care deeply about fiction writing um, and just people who are creative. And I, I love... Well, I don't try and help young people to break through whatever... But I do go into schools and things and talk about fiction. I mean, I go back to, I was in my old school, Cowdenbeath, Beath High School, Cowdenbeath, a couple of weeks ago, um, talking to the, the staff and also to some of the, the, the pupils there. I, they want, you know, it'd be nice if they can see somebody like me, somebody stupid like me from Carden Den can make it successful as a novelist. Why can't they? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's yeah. Yay! <laughs> all the stupid, all the stupid people. Stand, there we go. Stupid, Stand up. Uh, they can't all do it because there wouldn't be enough people to buy all the books. So yeah. anyway, only one person can do it. But no, it's absolutely you know, and this is and create you know, in all the creative industries, it's it's edging towards the very privileged and the people yeah. who can afford to, wouldn't it? Yeah. People who can afford to take a few years. Yeah, not I was, I, was, I was just talking about this last night about sort of work, you know working class voices in 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 books, working class voices in music, on film, whatever. It's getting harder and harder um, to to break through. And you know, I wouldn't even get to university now. Uh, I'm my hires, which is what we have up here, as opposed to A levels. Um, I got two A's, a B, and two C's, I think. And and I got into Edinburgh University to do English. I, that wouldn't happen now. Yeah. If I didn't get four or five A's, I wouldn't be in. Um, and I got a full grant. This was the glory years of the late 70s. I got 300 quid a term, 30 quid a week. And I could save from yeah. that. You know, I mean, a Vesta curry didn't cost that much money. <laughs> uh, or a Mr. Chuckety Leaf baked potato on your way home at night. And if you were feeling a wee bit gallish, you might have some garlic butter on that. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I, it was, it was a, it, we didn't know how, how privileged we were. Privileged, yeah. uh, odd word to use. But if you want to be in a band, you just signed on the dole. You signed on the dole and you could spend all day, every day practising. And those days are, are long gone now. Yeah. And I think, it's, I think it's a real sadness that, that people from my background are finding it so hard to get into all these different industries. It is. And then, but, you know, but by doing that, they're cutting off, the, you know, the, if, the, if it's one in a hundred or one in a thousand, whatever it is that becomes the big thing, that becomes you or Richard Osman or whatever, if they're cutting off that, that journey to get there, then they're actually losing money in the long run. It's, it's sort of, even if you think of it from a money point of view, which you shouldn't be, but if, mm. the, if, that, if you're putting the money in, I guess you are doing, you've, you've, you know, you've got to take that ch- chance and, and say, let's... let's but then, I mean, the, you know, we've, we've had a government for many years now south of the border, or in the UK, I should say, who, um, who don't really have any interest in creativity. No. I mean, the creative arts. You go, I mean, Brexit was an absolute nightmare if you were in a band. Yeah. If you were in a band, yeah. you can't go on tour in Europe anymore. 
Yeah. You know, because your equipment, it's so difficult to get your equipment out of the country and back into the country that you just go, it's not worth it. Yeah. It's so expensive, it's prohibitively expensive. You go, why would you put barriers in the way of one of your most successful export industries? Yeah. I just, I just it's nuts. Yeah. The whole thing is nuts. And at the same time, we've got Trump in the White House. And you go, how can we have Trump in the White House and Brexit happening? It's no wonder people turn to Richard Osman books. <laughs> <laughs> I think Richard Osmond's probably engineered the whole thing just to... Uh, oh, my God, wouldn't that be great? That's the twist. <laughs> that is the twist. It was, it was put together by two hedge fund managers and Richard Osmond. <laughs> I tell you, he started doing a podcast and I'm furious. Fuck off. <laughs> get out. Get out of it. You've got enough. You've got enough, Osmond. Dude, come back on and be a guest on mine. But fuck off otherwise. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't. You, 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 you uh, nearly wrote Sean Connery's autobiography. That was a. That was a. Sean who? Sean. <laughs> uh, Sean Connolly, did you Connery. say? Connery. Yeah, I thought you said Connolly. Yeah, um, yeah Sean Connery's. Uh, Connolly. I, well, I didn't nearly. I mean, he offered it to me and I turned it down. Right. Um, ghosting his autobiography. Um, but, it, you know, it was, his publisher got in touch and said, oh, Sean's. In, he's a big fan of the books. He's, uh, and he would sort of give them to people as gifts and stuff. Uh, and he, and he's, uh, his publisher said, oh, Sean's interested in doing his autobiography. We'd like you to ghost it for him or work with him on it. So he was going to come up to Edinburgh. And I went and met him. He was staying at a mate's house. That's how tight he is. And uh, <laughs> he flew up on his mate's private jet. And then he went and stayed at his mate's house. And uh, I went round. And I got sandwiches. I did get sandwiches. Um, I went round. And we sat just the two of us in a room. And we chatted and chatted and chatted and chatted. And he said, oh, you know, you can, you can come out to wherever he was living at the time, somewhere nice and warm. We can play golf. I said, I have to stop you there, buddy. I don't play golf. Um, <laughs> I, the look on his face was just horrific to behold. Um, and anyway, I went, and it was lovely. But the thing was, um, I thought, shit, I'm meeting Sean Connery. Right, grab a video, grab a DVD, grab something for him to sign. What can you find? What, 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 what? Right, that'll do. And I, I went along and I said, oh, by the way, Sean, can you sign this for me? And it was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> which is the film that ended his film career because he hated the experience so much and he hated the director. And, uh, and he went, oh, and he got the pen out and he's going, that director, a fucking madman, an absolute fucking madman. Uh, but he did sign it for me. I've, I've probably got the only signed copy of that DVD in existence. <laughs> A film he hated so much, <laughs> he left his career behind. Yeah. Um, but anyway, at the end, I, I went back home and I thought about it and thought, no, I don't want Because wasn't, it wasn't going to be a, a warts and all autobiography. No. It was going to be about his, his background in Edinburgh and his hopes for the future. And I thought, it doesn't sound the most exciting book in the world. And I would get pelters from the readers. They would blame me. Yeah. They wouldn't blame him, they would blame me. So I thought, no, I'm not going to do it. So I phoned his publisher up and said, I'm not going to do it. And I never heard from him. I did hear from him again, actually. He phoned me the next day. Uh, and he said, this is, uh, this is uh, Sean Connery here. Um, uh, can I get a table for two at 8 p.m.? <laughs> and I went, Sean, it's, it, it's Ian Rankin. He went, oh, sorry, I thought I'd phoned a new club. <laughs> so, so he didn't even take me to his club. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it, was, it, it could be the great lost, lost work. Um, I must uh, find that DVD now that you reminded me of it. Yeah, I can swap you for one of yours. Okay, definitely. I'll, I'll stick that on eBay. That'll be worth a lot. Um, uh, I did I'd, in the episode of Rebus. I, I watched. I did. Uh, it did date it a little bit to, to the on. filming time, but it, but he's quite successful with the ladies. In the episode I saw, 
he ended up having sex with Duckface from Four Weddings and a Funeral, which uh, does... does uh, I don't know if it was the same character she was playing or a different one. But he does quite well with the, the women. I don't think... I, I can't... I mean, Ken's... I'm no offence to Ken Stott. But. but. I sense a but, yeah. I don't, I don't think he could pull Duckface in her prime. That's a good question. <laughs> um... You've stretched. I mean, I know that's not your fault because you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, a, I've not watched this, so uh, I've no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I have watched four weddings and a funeral. Four weddings and a funeral. I've watched four weddings and a funeral, but I've not watched watched this episode of of Rebus. So uh, does he? Yeah, I mean, in the early days, he was attractive to women, but he never really. Nobody ever lasted. Um, He had a a partner for a wee while called Patience Aitken. and he even lived with her for a short time. My wife said, oh, she's boring. And that was all it took. My right. wife to say she's boring and she was out, she was gone. Right. Um, and he never really had... And then recently, in the recent books, he's got a, a pathologist called Deborah Quant that he has a kind of, you know, friends with benefits relationship with. The pair of them don't want to live together or anything like that. Um, but that's kind of fallen apart as well. He's just not very good at that sort of thing. No. Um, and the reason for that is that I wanted the reader to be focused on the whodunit. I didn't want my detective... I mean, this is the thing about fictional detectives, right? They, unlike real detectives, they don't have holidays. They don't have to need, need to go home because they've got to pick up the kid from school uh, or a dental appointment or something like that. You know, uh, you know, oh, we've got this amazing serial killer case. There's bodies everywhere. Yeah, but I've, it's my anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to go home. No, so I can ignore all that, which is why I decided he would be a loner yeah. or would live alone so that we could, and as would Siobhan Clark, the colleague that he works with, so that we can focus, they can focus on the story, the plot, right. and we could ignore all that stuff about, you know. It's like 20, remember 24, that series with Kiefer Sutherland, which was in real time. It, it was very clever because it was done in real time. He never went to the toilet. <laughs> remember that? He, never, he, never, he, never he, always, he always waited for the ads and he then he had a quick slash. He didn't, he didn't eat. He, didn't, he never saw me. You go, how, you, how are you managing to survive all this time without stopping for a meal? One of those episodes should have just been him sitting, just tucking in. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think a detective novel would work? I was wondering if you could do a detective novel where the detective doesn't manage to solve the case at all, like the one that you wrote that you didn't find the killer. Would yeah. that work or would it be too unsatisfying for the readers? Just because it would be more realistic. I mean, right? I do, yeah, I like open endings. I don't like it when everything is neatly tied up at the end. Um, and I can imagine that sort of story where you don't find out who the killer is. Um, there was, I mean, a few of my books have had quite loose, straggly endings and, and readers have said, oh, you know, tell me what happened afterwards. Yeah. And I go, well, I don't know. In fact, in America, one of the Rebus novels, Let It Bleed, had such an open ending that the editor said, can you write an extra chapter for the American market to tie up some of the loose ends? (laughs) So the American edition is different from the UK edition. It's got an extra chapter at the end that sort of explains... I mean, the thing about America is they don't trust the readers. I mean, no publisher trusts the readers. But in America, they would try and make it... So the Flesh Market Close, which is a real street in Edinburgh, title of one of my books, in America, is called Flesh Market Alley. Because American readers won't know what a close is. First thing that happens is Rebus walks down a close, walks in a door, and there's a body there. Come on, you know it's a street, a street of some kind. Yeah. But it's, uh, no, let's make it nice and easy for the American readers. We're going to call it Flesh Market Alley. Then the American readers, who are, of course are in, intelligent people, readers are intelligent people, 
come to Edinburgh looking for Flesh Market Alley, they find Flesh Market close and they write to me and say, Dear Mr. Rankin, I, I was really annoyed and disappointed. Uh, and I go, it's not me. It's not, it's the publisher. And by the same token, they will change, you know, I mean, Rebus in America cannot wake up with a fag in his mouth. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just, it's just not done. Um, he, he, in, 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 in America, he walks down a sidewalk. He doesn't walk down a pavement. Yeah. And I go, but the, we don't use the word sidewalk, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, using a rubber on, with a pencil. No, you can't use a rubber. He's using a razor. Um, using a rubber? The Americans are going, what? What's, he, what's this guy doing? Um, uh, a rubber in America is a condom. Yeah, okay. uh, a fag so in America these, is now. Yeah, no, no, really. But uh, all these, I mean, the biggest trouble I've ever had with the books is actually translation from English into English, you know? Right. Um, except once in France. The, in France, if they don't get a cultural reference or something, they leave it in in English and put a little footnote at the bottom in French to explain it, right? Okay. So in one of the Rebus novels, uh, and I forget which one, there's a line, I get the feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto that Rebus says to somebody. And I thought, that's a pretty famous line from a pretty famous movie. Yeah. Right. So the Ameri French edition arrives. They don't check into this shit with me. French edition arrives, and I go, oh, the little footnote. Got it kept it in English, little footnote. I go down and read the footnote in French, which says, uh, Rebus here is referring to the two American AOR bands, Kansas and Toto. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you're a French reader and you read that and then you go back to the line, it makes no sense whatsoever. We used to be in Kansas and now we're in Toto. We're not in Toto. Well, so so the, the translator thinks Rebus is a music fan. I've heard of a band called Kansas. I've heard of a band called Toto. And I'm going, I, was, I was so furious because there's no way on this earth that Rebus would listen to either Kansas <laughs> or Toto. You know. Um, I, I felt bad for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did want to talk to you about your pre-author life a little bit because you, uh, you, well, you, I think you were working as you were writing, uh, obviously alongside this, but you had to do some proper jobs as well when you were living in France. I think. So you were... uh, no, not so much. No, not in France. I mean, we did go to France before we moved to France. We went there for a short time, and I worked on a vineyard and, and a kind of farm attached to the vineyard. I thought um, you were a swine herd. That's quite. Yeah, nice. that, that was it. That was that was when I was. I just left uni, so that was yeah. uh, 1982. I worked as a swine herd on the. Yeah. We killed. A, I killed a pig accidentally <laughs> uh, by giving it an alcohol overdose. Wow. Uh, terrible story, really. I mean, they only had two pigs, right? And and one of them, we we trod the grapes. You tread the grapes, right? right? The old fashioned way. At the end of the harvest, and people think, oh, you roll your trouser legs up in a wee bucket. No, no, no. Huge big wooden vat, and you strip off. So you've got 20 or 30 young people, mixed sex, in this vineyard, drinking wine and treading grapes. And the reason you do it naked is by the end you're up to your neck. Okay. But you're not up to your neck when you start. And um, anyway, so we've got that, and then we're, all the wine's getting poured off, and then it's what's left is the lees, the, 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 the pips and the skin and everything. And that's quite nutritious, so I was supposed to feed it to the pigs, but I was so drunk um, that, that I didn't. I left it. And next day I was so hungover, I didn't. In the meantime, this stuff is sitting out in the sun, fermenting okay. nicely. Yeah. So the pigs get given it, they are pissed as farts. They're staggering around all over the place. Um, and then one of them doesn't make it. One of them falls asleep and just doesn't make it. And it, was, it, was, it just lay there, expanding. 
uh, in, a, in a wheelbarrow until we could find somebody to take it away and deal with it. It was, it was horrible. So I was taken off swine herd duties <laughs> in, uh, after that. I think if you're a swine herd, you have to keep at least 75% of them alive. That's exactly. what I think. That's so, what I, thought, yeah. I mean, it's 50% yeah. that's time to go. Yeah, yeah. So that was that. I mean, but yeah. that was before. I mean, yeah, when I left uni, um, I mean, I, you know, I had a year out. I worked as a tax man, and a yeah. tax collector in Edinburgh and all kinds of weird little jobs just to make some money. And then I begged him to let me back in to do a PhD. When I came out after the PhD, my wife was working in London as a civil servant. So we moved to Tottenham, uh, and, which was the only place we could afford. We went up and down the... She, lived, she was working in Victoria Street, so we went up and down the Victoria Line. And literally the only place we could afford was Tottenham Hill. So that's where we bought it. We've got a, a, a flat there. Um, and I worked on a hi-fi magazine. I worked in a, a Middlesex Polytechnic as a secretary. Then I worked on a hi-fi magazine. Yeah. Then Miranda, my wife, said, look, let's get out of this place. If you want to be a full-time writer, we're going to have to move to France. Um, <laughs> I couldn't speak French. Um, so we moved to France into this dilapidated farmhouse. And that's where I became a full-time writer. Right. And it was terrifying uh, because suddenly I was the breadwinner. Right. In London, she had been the breadwinner. Yes, cool. But now I was the breadwinner, and it was absolutely terrifying because the books were not selling. I was writing two books a year just to scrape enough money to get by. Yeah. And I was having panic attacks, huge panic attacks. I would drive around the countryside in her battered old 2CV, screaming at the top of my voice just to try and get this adrenaline out of my system. Wow. It was, it was horrible for a while. And then the books did start to sell, uh, and, and things got better, slowly but surely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, don't become a writer. Is the, is the, is the me- lesson to everyone? The me- that's no, I mean, the message. Certainly don't, write, don't write crime fiction. There's too much of it around as it is. <laughs> I mean, everybody, you know, everybody's right. Why are you not writing crime fiction? I might everybody give it a go. I, you know, yeah, come on. I might give it a go now. You know, Re- Reverend Richard Coles is at it. Yeah. And Richard Osmond's at it. And who else? So all the Richards. If you're called Richard, you can do yeah. it. That's... Maybe that's what it is. Ed, 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 Ed Edmondson, his books weren't, they were thrillers, weren't they? Um, Charlie Hickson, thrillers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that or kids' books? That's the choice. I think. I probably, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, detective fiction for kids, Rich. Yes. Come on. All right. I'm, 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 gonna, I'm in. Just go on to chat GPT. You'll be fine. Uh, uh, Alistair, Alistair Beckett King's writing uh, very funny uh, detective fiction for kids. So, uh, yeah. So there, are, there, is, there is some comedy there. And uh, Fergus Craig does a very funny pastiche. Have you read those pastiches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think there's any of you in there? Pastiches, I mean, I, yeah, pastiches are fun. It's sort of spotting which detectives are writing about or they're yeah. talking about. Rebus is in one of them, um, do, a dour Scottish detective. Right. Um, or, as you would say, dour yeah. Scottish detective um, in one of them. Uh, I, I forget which one it is. And I was, I was annoyed that they hadn't contacted me for more details on Rebus to make it more like him. But uh, <laughs> maybe they meant Taggart instead. <laughs> it, could, it, could, it could have been. And, you know, and eventually, if you keep getting Rebus older, you can cross over with Richard Osman and just stick him in Richard Osman's books. I, absolutely. That has always been my intention. Yeah. Is that Rebus eventually goes and lives in a care home and I can just get Osman to write the yeah. books. And I'd love to see him fuck over some of uh, Osman's characters as well. That would be great. <laughs> get into fights with them, choke a couple of them. It'd be good. They, they do get beaten up a bit. In, I, do, I do love Richard's books as well, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, look, it's, it's, such a, it's such a pleasure to talk to you about this. And thank you for indulging me and, and telling me so much about uh, the process. And there's lots more to talk. I, I was going to ask you about, you've just been talking about evil and, uh, and this, earlier today. But uh, do, you, do you think you've, through writing these books, you understand 
good and evil any better than you did before? Uh, well, I was making this speech today at a conference about evil because I did years ago do a TV sh- uh, series, documentary series on evil for Channel 4's religious programming. Who knew? Um, Brookside, but no, religious programming. Um, and yeah, No, I mean, at the end of that process, I got extraordinary access. I, was, I, I, I met the... the the, uh, the Pope's Exorcist. You know, it was a film recently with Russell Crowe. Right. And that was, the, I met that guy, Father Gabriel Amor. I interviewed him about what happens during an exorcism. I went to death row in Texas and interviewed a prisoner on death row. I spoke to historians and psychiatrists and philosophers, um, cops who'd arrested serial killers, psychiatrists who worked at Broadmoor, who knew Brady, Ian Brady and all that. At the end of the process, I wasn't much further forward. No. I could point to an action and say that was an evil act that you did. But it was really hard to point to individuals and say you're irredeemably evil. But I think it's such a it's a complex question, which is why crime writers keep doing it. We keep we keep having to worry away it and worry away it because we've not not quite answered the question yet about why we human beings keep doing these terrible things to each other. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I thought, how do you how do you have an answer? <laughs> <laughs> I can't, but, I, but I am now. I am now registered to exorcise you, Rich. Oh, yeah, that's good. Well, I mean, I've had it done to me, so I know how it's done. Oh, you know, it's, yeah. Well, you could, yeah, I've got. I'm being haunted by my son, as you know. So yeah. That, that, that well, maybe after the show we can okay, do that. Okay, you can come on over. Uh, look, the uh, the book, uh, and there'll be there will be another one. They've got it. You've got to write uh, at least. I've, I've just at least literally. One more. I've literally just started a new right. book. Okay, as no we pressure. Speak. Don't no well, panic attacks. Well, uh, October 2024, it should come out. Okay. if the good Lord spares me. Good. It's good. You know, it's, it starts with Rebus in the dock, so that's uh, that's a pretty good start. And we'll see what happens after that. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens in the next one. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the amazing Ian Rankin. Thanks so much for coming. I'll see you out there if you'd like to, but bye-bye. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Ian Rankin. Scant regard, do the music. I'm indebted to my friend Chris Evans, not that one, and Ben Evans, his son, who's also not that one. Uh, thank you also to Beck Cliff and uh, George Lingford for accompanying me over this 2023 leg of the tour. They'll be there. They'll be there in 2024. I hope so. Anyway, uh, thank you to everyone at the Queen's Hall for in Edinburgh for having us. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz on GoFasterStripe.com production. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Do come and see me on tour. RichardHerring.com slash gigs is the easiest way to find out where I'm going. And GoFasterStripe.com, you can buy books and downloads. And just tell your friends about the podcast. If you can't make it to the tour show, if you don't want to buy any products, then every time you listen to an advert, you're helping us make more podcasts with a very, very tiny micro payment. So thank you very much for that. I love you all. It's lovely to meet you on tour, by the way. Hello to everyone who's said hello so far. I do come and say hello after the show. If you enjoyed it, if you want to see me, that'd be nice. You can get a selfie. I don't care. I'm a selfie whore. All right, see you soon.